Welcome, everybody. Uh, as Megan mentioned, my name is Tom Miles. I'm the Dean of the University of Chicago Law School. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to our first Monday's lecture. Life around the world has changed in ways we would have never imagined due to the COVID-19 pandemic. As we convene today, I hope that you and your family and your friends have fared well during this tremendous crisis and that you are remaining safe and healthy. Here at the law school, our scholarship and teaching has continued, albeit in a different format. In the spring, I was heartened by how our faculty and staff and students came together during the quarter to ensure that we continue to offer outstanding teaching to our students and that we did so in a way that was so safe for everyone. As we look ahead to the fall, uh, we will continue our, to offer a tremendous education and we will do so in a hybrid format allowing students and faculty who wish to remain remote to do so, and allowing those who wish to convene in person to do so under social distancing and other safety precautions. Autumn quarter for us begins next week, and as the autumn arrives, it's also time for one of our great traditions at the law school, our first Monday lecture. It is one of the most beloved traditions at the law school. As many of you know, with the approach of a new Supreme Court term, we invite members of our faculty to share their expertise and their insights on issues upcoming at the court, and in particular, cases ahead in the new term. So I thank all of you for tuning in uh, and for your continued engagement with our law school. I'm thrilled that today we have two outstanding faculty members to talk about the upcoming Supreme Court term, Professors Aziz Huck and Jennifer No. Now I could go on at great length uh, and give them uh, extended introductions. I love to sing our faculty members' praises, but I will keep it as brief as possible. Professor Aziz Huck is the Frank and Bernice J. Greenberg Professor of Law. He's a graduate of Columbia Law School, and he clerked for Judge Robert Sack of the Second Circuit, and then for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. He joined our law school's faculty in 2009. He has published extensively in peer-reviewed journals and law reviews, and his scholarship concerns the interaction of constitutional design with individual rights and liberties. He has taught many courses, including constitutional law, criminal procedure, federal courts, and legislation. Professor Jennifer No is professor of law. She joined our law school in 2012. Before that, she obtained her law degree at Harvard Law School and was also a Marshall Scholar at Oxford. She clerked for Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit and then for Justice Stephen Breyer of the U.S. Supreme Court. She also worked in the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs during the Obama administration. Her teaching at the law school includes legislation and statutory interpretation as well as administrative law. Her research interests include administrative law, the executive branch dynamics, regulatory policy, and separation of powers. Today's presentation is entitled Supreme Court Preview 2020, Highlights and Perspectives. Professors Huck and No will give a preview of the cases before the term, and then we'll turn to the questions from our alums and from the audience. And with that, I would like to welcome Professor Aziz Huck. Thank you very much, Tom. And let me uh, reiterate my hope uh, to all on the call that everyone and their loved ones are doing well at this difficult time. 
The ideal of the rule of law is what legal scholars call an essentially contested concept. We all agree that it connotes something important. We disagree about what precisely this is. The Supreme Court's coming term, or at least the four cases that I will focus upon, is well understood as a contest over the meaning of the rule of law. Two conceptions are in play. First, is the rule of law imagined as imagined by classical legal theorists of the mid 19th century. This entails policing of distinct and separate spheres of authority, each associated with a different state or non-state entity. Second is an idea associated with the British legal theorist, Albert Venn Dicey, that the rule of law is encapsulated in the dictum that every man, whatever be his rank or condition, is subject to the ordinary law of the realm and amenable to the jurisdiction of the ordinary tribunals. Conflicts between these two conceptions of the rule of law precede the present term. Indeed, they also dueled last term. But this Supreme Court term presents this basic conflict in a new set of forms. I will talk about two lines of cases. The first line of cases concerns the accountability of executive branch officials, whether at the state or federal level, to law. Separation of powers cases last term, such as cellular law, BCFPB, and Trump v. Mazes and Trump v. Vance, pitted formalist conceptions of a branch's proper jurisdiction against the tangible risk of persisting illegality. In the cellular case, the federal litigant asserting an autonomous sphere of authority won out. In the Two Trump cases, the Dicean view of the rule of law prevailed. This term, in Department of Justice versus House Committee on Judiciary, the House of Representatives demands redacted portions of the Mueller report. Neither the immediate legal question nor the proximate consequences of that litigation will have significant nationwide consequences. Few among the public, I think, will notice or care whether or how the Supreme Court rules on the question whether Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 6E3EI, when it refers to the term judicial proceeding, encompasses impeachment uh, proceedings. Moreover, I, I suspect that there are quite a few who have forgotten who Robert Mueller is after COVID, Western wildfires, and George Floyd. Perhaps more consequential within the Judiciary Committee litigation are the issues identified by the dissenting District of Columbia Circuit just, Judge, Naomi Rao, as well as issues identified in the recent DC Circuit opinion on the House's suit to question Don McGahn, the former White House uh, counsel. The gist of these writings is that courts should not intervene to adjudicate interbranch disputes at the request of members of, the, of Congress. Although this might seem like a symmetrical principle that would constrain both Congress and the executive branch, it turns out to be little of the sort. Rather, the judges advancing this view are also strong advocates of justiciable presidential claims to exclusive removal authority and broad appointment power. In effect, they sketch a jurisprudence of the executive that is able to advance a textual and often a historical claims to a sphere of autonomous functioning, while at the same time disabling Congress from defending its privileges. This arrangement stands in obvious tension with the Dicean rule of law. Yet advocates of the idea 
that no one stands above the law should hesitate before looking to the courts for relief. The federal courts can certainly insulate executive branch actors from review, but they have proved stunningly inept at creating accountability. Information about the executive, especially the president, and especially malfeasance, is hot news. Its relevance decays quickly as time passes and the news cycle moves on. That the House Judiciary case is only now reaching the Supreme Court almost a year and a half after uh, its disclosures would have been relevant is suggestive of the futility of present forms of judicial review aimed at serving the House or the Senate's informational demands. The idea of accountability under law for executive branch officials is also at issue uh, or is also on the public radar as a consequence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the seemingly inexhaustible litany of men and women of color shot, suffocated, beaten, or choked to death by police. Last term, the court was asked to speak to the question of qualified immunity, a defense that benefits police officers. It declined to do so. This term, the justices are confronted with a case that shows the inadequacy of qualified immunity reform. Torres v. Madrid, which is to be argued by one of our graduates, presents the question of whether being shot by police while escaping is a constitutional harm. Technically, the decision will turn on whether it is a Fourth Amendment seizure to shoot somebody while they are escaping. I suspect that the court will say no, nicely illustrating how the substance of constitutional rights, as much as their procedural frameworks, can impede practical accountability. Now, the second line of cases I'll discuss concerns the religion clause. Here, the court is again confronted by a claim of impregnable institutional autonomy to stand above the ordinary law. It is also confronted by a number of deinstitutionalized claims by individuals to the law's protection. Now, the, the court last term addressed a number of religious liberty cases, uh, the most important of which were Espinoza, which concerned a state constitution's no aid to religion clause, which was invalidated. Little Sisters of the Poor, which concerned an administrative law challenge to the ACA's conscience uh, exception, that was rejected. Our Lady of Guadalupe Schools v. Morrissey Baru, which allowed parochial schools to fire uh, elementary school teachers without uh, uh, being subject to employment discrimination uh, clauses. Um, this term, uh, continues uh, the theme raised in those cases. Um, it does so in two forms, or in two religious liberty uh, cases. Uh, in one of those cases, the litigant, again, is an institution, as in the cases that I just described, that is seeking an exemption from a general rule of law on the ground that it possesses an autonomous sphere of activity. In the second case, uh, the litigant claiming a religious liberty interest is an individual, uh, and that individual seeks to vindicate a specific anti-discrimination norm. I suspect that the individual and the institutional claims will be treated differently. First, in Fulton versus the city of uh, Philadelphia, a Catholic charity challenges a municipal rule that prohibits the city from partnering with adoption agencies that discriminate against same-sex couple. Strikingly, the charity also asks the court to reconsider its 30-year-old precedent, Employment Division v. Smith. Smith held that religious liberty is not violated by neutral rules of general applicability applied without a discriminatory hand. 
The Catholic charity in Fulton seeks an opt-out from a general law that protects third parties. This was also the case in Morrissey, Baru, and Little Sisters. In all of those cases, the religious liberty uh, claim entails a spillover of costly harms that fall with dreary repetition upon women and sexual minorities. The tendency of the Roberts Court has been to approach these cases as if they concern one species of liberty alone, the institutional uh, uh, religious institutions. It will be interesting to see whether it uh, continues to employ the same asymmetrical framework in Fulton. Uh, the final case I'll discuss, and the other religious uh, discrimination case, concerns a federal statute rather than the Constitution. This is the Religious Liberty, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA. In Tamsin v. Tanvir, a group of Muslim men, all of whom are lawfully present in the United States but not citizens, were approached by the FBI uh, and asked to be informants upon fellow members of the Muslim community. Uh, when they refused to do so, their names were placed on the national no-fly list. They sued under RIFRA. Uh, and the issue before the court in Tanzan is whether RIFRA permits money damages for individ against fe individual federal employees. Now, Tanzan presents no question of institutional autonomy and instead pits an individual right to be free of discrimination uh, by the executive against a claim on the part of officials to have an autonomous sphere free of damages liability um, that, uh, in which to operate. In previous cases in which religious liberty has been pitted against the executive's claim to an autonomous sphere of operation for the purposes of national security or policing, religious minorities have persistently lost out. This was so in the post 9-11 uh, Ziegler v. Abbasi cases. It was so in the travel ban case of 2018. So to my mind, a way of thinking about the deep or one deep conflict that characterizes the Roberts Court jurisprudence is by imagining it as grappling between these two conceptions of the rule of law. On the one hand, the idea of separate and autonomous spheres of state and non-state actors, and on the other hand, the idea associated with Dicey that officials, when they act, must act under the rule of law supplied by ordinary courts. The Dicean view of the rule of law has been losing ground for the last 50 years. I do not anticipate that OT 2020 will be any different. Let me turn it over now to Professor Noe. Thanks, Aziz. So as we approach this year's first Monday, um, I think it's impossible not to see this term um, in the shadow of the presidential election, which looms large, uh, certainly at the beginning of the term. Um, already the court has weighed in or not chosen not to weigh in um, in a number of election related cases across various states. And whoever becomes the next president will undoubtedly also affect the kinds of cases that round out the docket. Um, as well as the uh, valence, if you will, about the court's appetite for continuing to either cabin presidential power or um, continue to expand it. And I think a lot of that really depends on, on whether we have a President Trump who is now no longer worried about reelection and therefore perhaps willing to push the boundaries even further of presidential power and this robust vision of the unitary executive, um, or a President Biden who will either engage in self-restraint to try and restore some of these norms as some of his early campaign promises seem to suggest, um, or in this time of extreme partisanship, 
um, perhaps continue to push the boundaries um, of executive power under the guise of rolling back Trump executives. And indeed, um, this would be a continuation, really, of a historical arc whereby um, many policies are fought out through the administrative state particularly um, at a time when uh, Congress is, for all intents and purposes, um, moribund, and uh, we just have the stakes are just becoming higher and higher as these old statutes are now being repurposed uh, for, 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 for more contemporary ends. Last term, right, the narrative was that Chief Justice Roberts was now firmly the median voter, uh, now that Justice Kavanaugh has settled in. Sometimes he aligns with his fellow conservatives, sometimes aligning with the courts for liberals, I think the DACA decision, all in these attempts to keep the court above the fray. But I think it's also important to remember and recognize um, that we're also seeing the fruition of a number of jurisprudential moves by the chief and previous iterations of this court that have taken the long view by really planting seeds in the doctrine, uh, again, in the area of presidential power. And I think both Aziz and I are, are focusing on this, again, because of um, the stakes and um, uh, the election that's in sight. And in that vein today, I'm going to focus on two cases. I'm going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into them um, in an attempt to, to pull out some of those analytic themes. Okay, so the first um, is going to be really a sequel to Sala Law, which uh, Aziz already uh, previewed a bit for us, in a case called Collins versus Mnuchin. This case is a challenge to the structure of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, FHFA, uh, which, like the Consumer Finan Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, was also created um, in the wake of the financial crisis. So it's a relatively new agency. Like the CFPB, um, FHFA also features a single director who is only removable by the president for cause. And this suit was brought by Fannie and Freddie shareholders over the agency's 2012 financing agreement with the Treasury Department. And it presents two questions. Okay, first of all, um, how broadly or narrowly should we read SALA law? In other words, uh, is the FHFA similarly unconstitutional? And if so, should the court sever the offending unconstitutional for cause limitation? And then secondly, uh, perhaps more appreciated by administrative law nerds, but, no, but equally important, I think, in some respects, is this question, at least with respect to the parties, is the question of the appropriate remedy. Um, that is to say, once the court has found uh, particular agency action to be taken under an unconstitutional structure, uh, is the duty of the court to set the agency action aside under the terms of the APA, um, or is its discretion much more equitable? Uh, does it, can it, for example, um, grant purely prospective relief as the Fifth Circuit did in Collins versus Fiducian? Um, it's, it's worth noting that in proceedings before the Fifth Circuit and its, its brief opposing review, the Justice Department decided not to defend the removal um, restriction at issue here. And so the court recently appointed um, Aaron Nielsen um, from BYU to defend the removal restriction. And of course, this is like Paul Clement defending the removal restriction in um, CFPB. Uh, but and as, as mentioned, Collins is really going to help us determine um, whether sale of law is a narrow decision or um, whether it's much broader. That is to say, can sale of law about the constitutionality of the CFPB 
be relatively cabined to the facts of the CFPB. That is to say, um, the CFPB arguably exercised much broader powers than the FHFA. Um, the CFPB can regulate private parties, uh, whereas the FHFA mainly regulates government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie and Freddie Mac. Perhaps that's one way to distinguish the two agencies um, at, at, at issue in the two cases. A much broader reading for the pessimists um, in the room or uh, optimists, depending on your view of independent agencies, is really this is uh, another step in the death march uh, of independent agencies, really that's been started at least as far back as Free Enterprise Fund, with Justice Roberts really firmly leading the charge. Um, in other words, Collins really continues this methodical assault um, on these agencies headed by individuals with four-cause removal restrictions, um, thereby vindicated, vindicating um, the president's power to control the bureaucracy. Um, it's worth saying just a little bit about SALA law to kind of um, contextualize uh, CFPB in terms of the doctrinal moves that it might make. Um, because first of all, um, SALA law seemed to suggest there were really only two limited exceptions to the president's otherwise unlimited removal power. First is to ask, um, is the agency in question a multi-member agency? or a single-headed agency. If multi-member, we have a precedent, Humphrey's executor decided in 1935, that blesses the four-cause removal restriction. Um, but if it's a single director, uh, then the uh, removal restriction is potentially unconstitutional. The FHFA, of course, having the single director um, would suggest that um, on, on one reading of sale law, FHFA is also similarly unconstitutional. Um, another, and then the other kind of piece of it, which is not so relevant here of SALA law, is that removal restrictions are also only allowed for inferior officers. And that allowed the court then to read in a previous president called Morrison to say, well, look, the independent counsel there was just an inferior officer. And therefore, um, and, and of course, that narrow exception is not as relevant here because nobody disputes that these directors are principal officers. So uh, again, if the same logic applies to the FHFA, then indeed the FHFA is, uh, at least its current structure is um, not to be with us much longer. It's also, as I mentioned previously, um, relatively novel and the sale law court uh, was very worried about the providence, if you will, of the um, agency itself, um, the extent to which this form was, was uh, new, the court was, um, less willing to bless it as constitutional. And um, it's worth briefly noting on the question of severability, because I think that will be a seg to my next case, um, that Justice Thomas filed an opinion concurring and dissenting in part in SALA law, um, disagreeing with the decision in SALA law to sever the removal restriction he um, expressed broad concerns about our modern severability doctrine, and he simply would have denied the CFPB's request to enforce the demand for the documents in SALA law. And, uh, and in terms of the remedies um, in SALA law, as, as potentially relevant here, in SALA law, basically the court um, remanded back to the district courts to sort it out. And um, in CFPB, excuse me, the FHFA case in Collins versus Mnuchin, um, I think again, it's 
if you look at the court's jurisprudence on remedies in this context, I think it really is going to be case by case because there are features of this case. For example, the fact that the president still had a good deal of control over the policy that was set here by the FHFA, given that it was an agreement between the Treasury Department, which is headed, of course, by somebody who is removable at will, and FHFA. So in other words, the argument that the president could not weigh in on the decision here, that in other words, that he, he was limited by the removal restriction is much weaker because of the facts of this case. And therefore, I think that the Fifth Circuit um, had an argument at least that um, the remedy here was, was again, purely prospective. It did not necessarily merit a vacateur of the um, agency decision here. So as I mentioned, um, the doctrine of severability is hugely important um, to our next case, uh, which I'll uh, just tee up, uh, which is California versus Texas, consolidated with Texas versus California. And here we've got the Affordable Care Act uh, and the constitutionality of the statute uh, before the court once more. Um, it's worth noting that uh, oral argument is scheduled for after the election, which I think is very savvy timing, lest the court itself become an election issue. And the stakes of this case have become only higher amidst the global pandemic, right? At least one, one um, estimate suggests that there are about 20 million people that are taking advantage of um, exchanges and now some people estimate with the pandemic that now we're closer to 22 million. And of course this case features the Department of Justice at various points, but um, also 18 states led by Texas, which I'll just call the red states versus the blue states, uh, arguing that um, the ACA's insurance purchase mandate, which was of course rendered unconstitutional, was they are arguing that was rendered unconstitutional um, when the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act essentially zeroed out the penalty. So recall, of course, that this mandate was the focus of the 2012 constitutional challenge to the ACA, right? This is National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sibelius, NFIB versus Sibelius. And there, five justices did indeed decide that the mandate was not a valid exercise of Congress's commerce power, but famously or infamously, Roberts provided the fifth vote to save the mandate in an act of constitutional avoidance by construing it as a tax. So now the, the red states argue that uh, without the functional tax, uh, well, the ACA is caught in the clause of uh, the Commerce Clause once more and therefore is unconstitutional. And much more significantly, they also argue that this mandate is so intertwined with the rest of the key provisions of the ACA that if the court invalidates the mandate, the entire ACA must fall with it. Briefly, just on the issue of constitutionality, um, I think it'll be interesting to see once again um, the extent to which Trump's tweets uh, undercut his own administration's legal arguments. Because recall that the, that the claim of unconstitutionality depends in part on the argument that the mandate still has some coercive force. And that is what the red states, uh, Texas, um, is arguing uh, because they claim that both it as a state and in the individuals, um, despite the lack of a penalty, still felt coerced to purchase the insurance. And they were harmed because they indeed purchased the insurance and they had this financial harm. Um, but Donald Trump, uh, January 13th, uh, tweeted this year, I stand stronger than anyone in protecting your health care with pre-existing conditions. I am honored to have terminated the very unfair, costly, and unpopular individual mandate for you. Okay. Potentially, one could argue suggesting that actually the mandate doesn't exist and no worries, there's nothing coercive. 
Um, some, some people might, might, might argue that this um, prevents, this presents um, kind of a backdrop for the court to be more skeptical, at least about the constitutional arguments. And um, I think it's also just worth noting here, because uh, I, I heard it recently, I thought it was so interesting, that some people think that this original lawsuit was brought pre-2018 um, in an attempt to kind of throw red meat to the base in the, in the 2018 elections because um, efforts by Congress to roll back the ACA had failed. And um, they kind of thought this lawsuit was a, a Hail Mary, if you will, that the arguments wouldn't go that far. And some people were really surprised when indeed um, uh, this, this district court judge did buy them. And then in addition to that, also bought the severability argument and um, threatened the entire ACA. Briefly, um, if we want to read the tea leaves on severability, it's worth observing that the court um, last term had two cases where it was confronting this issue of severability directly. First in Sala Law, which I've already mentioned, um, as well as in a case called Barr versus American Association of Political Consultants, uh, basically dealt with um, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. And in both cases, both Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh arguably went out of their way to emphasize the presumption of severability, or put differently, the presumption that the court attempts to save a statute even when finding one of its provisions unconstitutional. Now one could argue that those cases are distinguishable because there is a colorable claim, um, particularly in Salem law, that there was an express severability uh, provision in those statutes. But again, both justices, despite the express provision, had a lot of language about the importance of this presumption. Um, I'm just going to say two things on severability. Okay, one is just to, to point out that it really depends on which formulation of severability the court wants to adopt in California versus Texas, because okay, there's been various formulations throughout the years. The first formulation is essentially that it's a test about congressional intent. Judges are supposed to ask, would Congress, hypothetically, have passed this statute absent the unconstitutional provision? And indeed, I think that there is a good argument that um, without the mandate, recall the arguments about the three-legged stool um, in King versus Burrow and other cases about the importance of the mandate to the other parts of the um, Affordable Care Act to prevent the death spiral. On the other hand, there is in um, a functional argument and a formulation of the doctrine that basically asks, well, look, could the statute operate functionally even without the unconstitutional provision? One argument that the, the, the parties have made here, which I think has some, has some legs, is that, look, when two, in the 2017 Jobs Act, Congress itself must have thought that the statute could, could function um, by leaving the rest of the ACA intact, even when zeroing out the penalty. Another observation here is that uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, the ACA, at least since the beginning of 2019, has been operating without the penalty. And by most accounts, we haven't seen the death spiral that we feared. And so maybe that's an argument that, look, just look, at, look, look around you. I mean, that the, the, the functionally speaking, the statute um, is still working. I will say that even if the court takes this tack of looking at congressional intent, 
Uh, there are various members of the conservative majority um, that I think are uneasy with having to um, figure out which parts of the ACA, if they don't agree that the entire thing should fall, are um, intertwined with the unconstitutional mandate. Um, in last term, Justice Thomas and Gorsuch expressed growing discomfort about the court's power to blue pencil statutes, right, criticizing the nebulous inquiry into hypothetical congressional intent. In other words, this fear that courts would essentially be legislating rather than acting as judges by um, striking out various pieces of the Affordable Care Act, lest uh, if, if they don't agree that it should be struck down altogether. Finally, let me just point out that there is a real issue of standing in this case. And I think it really provides the opportunity for the court to punt on the merits if it wanted to. Um, as I've already previewed, uh, there is a real argument that the individuals and the states aren't suffering any harm because again, they don't face any penalty. And um, there's also a really interesting argument that Thomas and Gorsuch um, previewed for us last term um, in, 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 and it goes something like this, that if the parties don't have standing to challenge the rest of the ACA, then it's very difficult for them to argue in this case that the entire thing should fall. In other words, they seem to suggest that the, um, the parties had to have show some kind of harm related to the other portions of the statute and not just the provision at issue. So we'll, we'll see whether the court wants to take on this role. I suspect that probably will want to reach the merits. Just look, it needs, we need some finality here um, after, um, after so much litigation um, surrounding the Affordable Care Act, and particularly amidst the pandemic, uh, people need to know whether they can continue to buy on these insurance exchanges. So with that, um, I will turn it back over to Dean Miles for um, questions for our alums. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Aziz. Uh, thank you both for those uh, terrific set of remarks and, and highlighting uh, important and interesting cases coming up this term. Um, so this is the point at which we will uh, call on uh, questions. We'll, we'll uh, look at the questions that are in the Q&A. I encourage you to everyone participating today to write your questions out in the Q&A feature, which is the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, I know with the University of Chicago alumni, there are no shortage of questions. So please put them in there and I will try to do my best to collate them and to present them to our panelists. Uh, several of you wrote in questions in advance, so pulling on those, I will get things started uh, with, I think, you know, an easy and uncontroversial question. Uh, and that is, uh, both of you alluded to uh, the fact that this is an election year, uh, and this may shape uh, how the court approaches cases and, and which particular cases they, they approach. Uh, the particular question that, that one of our alums sent in was, you know, if the 2020 presidential election makes its way to the Supreme Court, perhaps in a Bush versus Gore manner or in another manner, do you have any predictions about how the court will uh, seek to, to handle that? So again, an easy, we're starting with an easy and, and uncontroversial question. Yeah, I'll just observe a few things and then um, let Aziz um, add more. Um, as I alluded to in my previous remarks, um, I think a lot has been happening on what uh, one of our colleagues, Will Bode, has called the court's shadow docket. Uh, that is to say, all the activity of the court that happens when it's considering um, various petitions for injunctions and stays um, without the transparency of the merits cases. 
And for example, right, we've seen a, uh, the court um, very recently um, declining um, to block lower court order in Rhode Island um, dealing with absentee ballots. And I'll, and I'll just observe that I think that the likelihood of a Bush v. Gore-like situation is so much higher this year than in previous years, given the pandemic and the extent to which people will be relying on mail-in ballots, which I think will be, um, which will be, and uh, now uh, many states have already indicated that they will be counting them um, after election day. And I think a lot of what will frame the Supreme Court's intervention here will depend a lot on the vote margins in various states and the perception that a particular case is going to be decisive as we saw in Bush versus Gore. And unfortunately, I predict that there will be many of these cases in various states coming up. And it's difficult, I think, to predict how uh, the court will rule without knowing exactly what the legal issue will be, um, except to observe that I think in the, the shadow docket, some of the writings, I think, suggest that a majority of the court, and, 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 and more than five, um, are, are really eager to let uh, as much of this stay with the states as possible. Um, both because I think election administration is often the purview of the states, um, and also it provides a way for the Supreme Court to justify why it's going to try to stay out of incredibly decisive partisan um, issues. I agree with much of what Professor Lowe said. I, I think I diverge in one respect. Um, in the uh, five important matters that have come up to the Supreme Court uh, concerning uh, either ballot counting or access to the franchise in the case of Florida's disenfranchisement of former felons, uh, the court has declined to intervene in four out of five cases in ways that narrowed uh, the ballot and disadvantage Democrats, uh, all other things, all else being equal. The justification uh, across these cases, uh, to the extent that it's observable, or to the extent that it's formalized, is the court's concern about the possibility of confusion in the run-up to an election with respect to the relevant rules for access either to the franchise or the ballot. This was the justification that was most apparent um, in litigation in respect to absentee ballot counting in the April Wisconsin primary. The observation that I would make is that that concern about pre-election confusion does not apply on November the 4th. So I think it is risky to use the court's posture of uh, non-interference in the pre-election context as a basis for predictions of what it would do uh, in the post-election context. In my remarks, I, I focused upon the concept of the rule of law. And, and part of the reason uh, I did that is because I was thinking of the election cases. Uh, in 2002, uh, my former teacher, Jeremy Waldron, uh, wrote uh, an article that influenced my thinking today. Uh, the article was called, Is the Rule of Law an Essentially Contested Concept in Florida? Perhaps somebody will have occasion to write a, a Pennsylvania analog to that piece in a year or so.
Thank you. Um, I know we have a couple of we have a couple of uh, uh, participants who have raised their blue hand uh, in Zoom, uh, which when we're normally in our kind of Zoom room format, that's a great thing to do. But because of the number of participants that we have, we're in webinar format, so I'm not able to go directly to those people who have raised their blue hand. So I encourage those people to write out your question in the Q&A function down at the bottom of your screen, and then we'll be able to, to hear and answer your questions. But let me turn uh, to the first question that was asked, which is a question for Professor Huck, which is your, the framing of your presentation was about the dicey and non-dicey concepts of the rule of law. And this questioner asks for you to please elaborate on the origins and meaning of the, the non-dicey concept of the rule of law. So there are many conceptions of the rule of law uh, and uh, legal philosophers disagree uh, vehemently over which is best or correct. Um, for example, in addition to the two that I identify, uh, perhaps one of the most influential uh, veins of thinking about the rule of law, uh, a vein that's associated with uh, the scholar Lon Fuller, draws upon natural law ideas. The strand of rule of law thinking that I uh, underscored and juxtaposed with Dicey's writing uh, concerns or derives from what's called classical legal thought. Classical legal thought was the school of jurisprudence that dominated uh, American law schools and American jurists uh, in the mid to late 19th century. Uh, it had a number of different working parts. Uh, uh, for example, contract theorists have written about the importance of what's called the will theory. Uh, the distinction between the public and the private was also a, a central part of classical legal thought. Yet another element of classical legal thought that was evident both in the public and the private law domains was the notion that uh, the, the law was properly understood as a device for sketching out spheres of autonomous action in which different species of sovereignty or rule obtained. So the family, for example, was the domain in which the father ruled, quite literally in terms of the, the doctrine of, uh, of coverture. Uh, the church was, the was a domain in which the, uh, the pastor or the bishop ruled. Uh, uh, in thinking about the states and the federal government, the central problem of constitutional federalism was defined in terms of sketching the boundaries of their respective spheres of autonomous operation. It is that period of thought that I think has uh, captured the imagination of many jurists today and that I was emphasizing in my remarks. Great, thank you. Let's, let me go to one question and direct this one to, to Professor No. And this question points out uh, a possible partisan valence in, uh, in uh, the decision in CFPB. And the questioner asks whether or not that decision might actually benefit a President Biden if he should be elected, um, and whether there's a, a broader applicability to other agencies and potentially a risk that Trump appointees might resist being removed uh, from their positions. Do you have any, any views on, on, on how that's shaping uh, shaping how we think about these cases. 
Uh, I'm sorry, Professor No, you are. There we go. Um, that's a great question. So I think indeed uh, for President Biden or more generally, whenever the president, um, pres the administration changes hands from different parties, um, they're not going to benefit from this because I think as your question is suggesting, they're able to remove um, without any explanation those um, heads of agencies that are not in line with their policy priorities. Uh, and so just to acknowledge that I, th I think that that's true and right. Um, in terms of other agencies, so SALA law pointed out that there were um, four other agencies besides the CFPB that had a similar structure. So in addition to the FHFA, which is at issue of policy we've got the control of the currency, we have the Social Security Administration, and we have, importantly, the Office of Special Counsel. Okay, I say importantly because, as, you, as many of our listeners probably know, the Office of Special Counsel is um, inherently involved in the whistleblower process. There's a lot of interactions that the Office of Special Counsel has with the inspectors general. And um, I, I just wanted to flag that because I think the issue of um, whistleblowers and independent um, inspectors general rather has been very important in terms of the appointees um, under Trump because Trump has um, had many acting um, IGs as well as many vacancies um, in a way that um, I think would lead the Biden administration to want to get rid of many of the IGs. Anyway, IGs are a separate topic that we could talk about further, but the point is, is that um, the Office of Special Counsel is very much a part of the scheme that IGs are um, involved with. Um, but as for whether they would resist, I, I will say, I think Henry Kerner, who heads the Office of Special Counsel right now, has had a lot of bipartisan um, approval. I think by all um, accounts, he's been very good about trying to move the cases along. And there's some question about um, whether his some of the challenges facing whistleblowers now, for example, are due to resource constraints rather than a, a lack of will. Um, so this is just to say, I don't think he would um, necessarily be the first that Biden um, would be, uh, be looking to remove. Um, and I don't necessarily know, think that he would be wanting to resist. Um, the Social Security Administrator, Andrew Saul, I think um, could be in that category. Um, you know, that said, I do think that the SSA, given its history and its role in um, the in the policy of, of benefits. Um, I think that it's traditionally been an area where people have perceived the president to have a lot of control. The structure of the SSA has changed throughout time. And so I wonder what the big question is about the, the emergence of norms that used to exist. Um, I wonder if the norm will, will also adhere here and therefore we won't see that, that resistance. So this is just to say, I have, um, I agree that Biden is benefited uh, by, by, by the decision. I also have reason to be a little more optimistic that we won't see uh, the resistance, particularly given the writing on the wall, as I expect Collins versus Mnuchin to signal that, um, you know, essentially these single heads of these agencies um, really should be removable at will. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there's a question here that's directed to Professor Huck, but I think each of you might have something to, to say about it. And that is, how would you predict or analyze the role of federalism uh, in this contest between different conceptions of the rule of law? And how do you view the differences between federal and state governments uh, in terms of, and here I'll focus on the power limits that affect the discussions in these cases? I, I think as a historical matter, 
Um, federalism has uh, promoted the Dicean rule of law uh, by uh, creating interjurisdictional conflict. This is most uh, apparent after the Civil War, where the jurisprudential, the judicial devices for enforcing the rule of law came from the federal government and were interposed uh, against uh, state lawlessness. And it's the failure of political will at the federal level in the late 1870s and early 1880s that allows the resurgence of state level lawlessness and the primacy of Jim Crow to persist through to the 1960s. Um, the uh, correlative to that today, uh, in which the dynamic works in the other direction, is uh, litigation in which states or municipalities uh, resist efforts by the federal government to engage in policies that in the state's view are inimicable to the content of federal law. So Arizona, for example, seeks to uh, enforce uh, immigration law above and beyond what the Obama administration sought to do. Uh, in contrast, the city of Chicago and many other municipalities seek to ratchet back uh, uh, immigration law enforcement in relation to what the Trump administration would do. Um, so I, I view the, the most important connection between federalism and the rule of law to be one that sounds in this uh, register of interjurisdictional competition, a, a competition that has a long history and that has different uh, political or partisan valences depending upon the moment in time at which it occurs. Just the one thing that I would add to, to this um, is just to observe the different um, formulations of executive power at the state versus the federal level and um, how we will see that play out when we think about federalism, that is the interaction between the federal and the state governments, just to observe that um, unlike the federal government at the state level, um, many of the executives are plural executives. They aren't just, you know, um, all the executive power is not just vested in the president. And therefore, um, in many states, we see things like um, a relatively independent uh, attorney general. Um, and I think that um, we will see this, especially when we, as Aziz pointed out, look at the kind of cases that are being brought. And we will sometimes see, I think, situations where um, the um, partisan valences, if you will, of the governors of those states may differ uh, from the attorney generals. And um, anyway, I think that that's going to be a theme worth watching, and it'll be very interesting. Can I ask this question? One, one question from one of our graduates is uh, about the relationship between separation of powers, conflicts, and executive privilege decisions. And in particular, is you do the executive privilege decisions, how do they shape whether the court would want to weigh in on or stay out of conflicts between the executive and uh, Congress? I'm happy to take a first cut at that. The executive privilege uh, decisions are, are only a small fraction of the disputes that arise between Congress and the executive branch over the flow of information. 
So executive uh, privilege decisions uh, formed, a, or, or the doctrine of executive privilege was a central part of uh, litigation uh, about a decade ago uh, concerning uh, the testimony of Harriet Myers and documents held by Josh Bolton, uh, both of whom worked in the Bush II uh, White House. Um, but other uh, conflicts over information uh, between Congress and the executive have concerned uh, distinct and different doctrines. So for example, there are questions about when and how congressional committees have standing to uh, acquire information. There are questions over when and how uh, different elements of Congress has what's called a cause of action, uh, which is a, a, a very esoteric doctrine uh, that uh, requires that the uh, plaintiff in a lawsuit be able to point to some positive source of law as authority for their ability to bring a lawsuit. The Senate, for example, has a statutory course of action. Uh, the House uh, does not. Um, in other cases, there's, there's litigation about whether uh, third parties uh, should be uh, required to disclose material. Um, executive privilege may, may play a role there, uh, but there are other privileged document uh, doctrines, um, including lawyer-client privilege, and what's called the deliberative process privilege, which is actually the subject of another uh, 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 case that the court has granted cert on in relation to uh, uh, the FOIA statute this term, um, that, can that, that can also come into play. All of which is to say that um, in litigation over uh, who gets what information from the executive branch, executive privilege uh, may be the uh, the last uh, of the uh, uh, stops in the route that the litigation takes, uh, but more often than not, that the action in court concerns earlier threshold doctrines of justiciability uh, and the like. Great. We are we are we are down to to time for one more question, and here's the one question that. You know, especially in this in this time of remote working, uh, all of us in the institutions that we're a part of are adapting to remote work. And so, one question is just: given the the remote working that the court is now engaged in, do you anticipate that will affect sort of how the court functions and how the court reaches its decisions, or is that something that um, we shouldn't be concerned about? Is that something that the court's going to be able to proceed as it as it more or less does, and we shouldn't? expect that there would be any changes in how the court approaches its work? Well, certainly, I think one debate that um, this change is going to raise once again is the extent to which um, the court's proceedings should be more open and be made available to the public, right? Because now if it's, if, you know, even these justices, right, can figure out how to work Zoom, um, there's less of a, there's, that's one less argument, at least for saying like, look, this is not something that, that could be done. Um, that said, Given the, what many justices have said on that, I'm, I'm doubtful that they will change policy, but I think that the arguments will become um, much stronger. I mean, we saw that once, once we start to see um, 
audio recordings of the oral arguments once they were made available sooner than they than they were one wonders if the next step then is um, even if it's not like the video recordings as we're doing now um, at least the audio recordings to be made more available particularly given that the public now is much more educated about um, accessing these things um, I think that that will that will be um, certainly raised once again not to mention of course all the technology concerns the security concerns that will also be present I think one difference that we will not be able to see or will not be able to test ex post, but that I think might be quite significant, is the, the difference in the justices' socialities uh, between uh, the periods in which the court is open and the periods in which they remote workly. Uh, when the court is open, uh, the justices, uh, at least uh, every once in a while, interact with each other. They're they're face to face with each other. And those interactions entail a certain kind of collegiality. There's a certain warmth and uh, uh, camaraderie that characterizes relationships, even among justices who are ideologically quite far apart. When justices When justices are working remotely, it's not just that that camaraderie is lacking or absent. It's that the justices are, uh, to greater or lesser extents, more likely to be uh, plugged into the same social media, social network, and electronic communications networks that all of us are. And as, as we all know, those networks are not evenly distributed along partisan or identitarian lines. And, and so one difference, I think, net between the uh, remote working context and the, and let's call it uh, optimistically ordinary time, is that at this moment in time, perhaps the, uh, the what um, my co-author David Fontana and I have called the, the political surround of, uh, of Washington DC will have a greater grip on the justices than would ordinarily be the case. I was just going to muse briefly because I think that's such a wonderful point about the lack of relative lack of interaction um, between the justices. Indeed, it was a big deal that Justice Breyer had an office near Justice Kennedy's because he could just pop in, you know, to, to talk to him when he wanted to. I, I, I also I can't help but wonder if the opposite might occur. Um, that is to say that, um, you know, I think in this Zoom era, many people are finding themselves reconnecting for, um, you know, with, with friends that they haven't seen for, for a long time. And um, one wonders, hopes maybe, that the justices, instead of relying on facts that they used to years ago to communicate with each other outside of court, you know, might uh, interact a little bit more as a result of having this remote technology, um, again, subject to the technology concerns that certainly are at the forefront of the court's mind. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you both, uh, Professor Jennifer No, Professor Aziz Huck, for your insights and for a great substantive conversation today. Uh, I'm very grateful to you for, for sharing your expertise. And I'm also very grateful to all our alums and friends for joining us today and for their questions. I very much miss seeing all of you in person, having the opportunity to, to chat and catch up. But I look forward to our being able to do that again very soon. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, I encourage all of our friends and alums to look forward to additional online programming uh, that we'll be providing in the coming year. For, please watch for more information on that. And I ask uh, the professors and the media to please click over to uh, their media session right now. 
And I wish everyone to stay safe and stay healthy. Uh, I look forward to seeing all of you again in person very soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay well.